and she directed this willful effort toward the kingdom of Ethel. She smiled her sickly, fat smile. She would begin to prepare her nest. In the murky light of late evening, under a cloud-lambent moon, two basilisks reared up out of the shallows of the river Bethel. Their sinewy reptilian bodies thumped resoundingly against one another. The basilisk's angry crow hiss filled the air as they went at each other amain with their keen fighting cock claws. The surrounding woodland reverberated as the two beasts rose out of the water, tearing at each other with sharp beaks and honed spurs. Their glance, which could kill, and their lethal breath were ineffective against their own kind, but their furious animal brawn and savagely contumacious nature made them as dangerous as any animal alive. They rose into the air again, their bodies interlocked in fierce mortal combat. Their beaks sought to tear at unprotected necks, and claws and talons attempted to cleave soft bellies. Then the Moloch's dispatch arrived, unheard but deeply felt, unseen but instinctively registered. Both basilisks settled back into the water their fatal encounter forgotten in an instant. They smoothed their ruffled wing feathers with their yellow beaks, and their heads swiveled toward the south. Together they re-entered the river Bethel, enemies no longer, and began their slow swim toward the Moloch's beckoning. The parent griffins, mother and father, stood back from the body of the red deer and watched proudly as their twin progeny ripped into it with their eagle beaks. The mother had hunted it down earlier that day, stunning it with her scream as she streaked down upon it out of the late afternoon sun. The paterfamilias of this dignity of griffins watched proudly as his cublets tore at the carcass. He looked over affectionately at his mate and was about to nudge her into joining the feast with him, when the message urge hit them all concurrently. The father stood, chest outthrust, and surveyed the area with his keen eagle eyes. A scrap of red meat dangled from the beak of the young male as the four heads turned to the southwest. The two cublets were on full alert, standing stiff-legged, their lion ears pointed forward, their eagle eyes bright and watchful. The father griffin trotted out several steps and sniffed the air. He glanced back at the three other members of the dignity and nodded his head. The nod was almost superfluous. All four had felt the message arrive and all had felt its primordial tug. The father griffin stretched his wings and started a trot, which turned into a lope, which turned into a flat sprint, and soon he was airborne. He circled as his family joined him, and soon the dignity was flying southwest, toward the source of the power. Miles distant, the huge beast shook her head. She had tried to ignore the pull the unseen, unheard force that drew her away from her nest, but the persistence and strength of the power could not, would not be denied. She drew her massive bulk up onto her hind legs and peered around the forest. She lowered herself gently. She moved nimbly and swiftly through the forest, her formidable body seeming to skim the forest floor. She ran tirelessly for many miles. The earth shook and leaves trembled in the trees as she passed. Eventually she slowed and stopped. Her nostrils sniffed the air almost daintily. She scented out a new and unfamiliar smell, and she knew that she had never been to this area, 
to the place whence this odour emanated. It was a smell of wood smoke and thatch, of freshly cut cedar and cheese, of beer fermenting and pigs roasting. She swivelled her head toward the sound of laughter and stalks rustling. She walked slowly and cautiously to the very edges of a cornfield. Men and women moved through the cornfield carrying large woven baskets picking the corn. The beast, whose green coloration intermingled with the verdure of the forest, sat on her haunches in silence, her head cocked, watching the human activity. Several minutes passed before one of the men looked up and saw her, a beast the like of which had not been seen for a hundred years. He screamed and flung his basket upwards, the ears scattering willy-nilly amongst the cornstalks. Others glanced up, startled. They too saw the huge green dragon sitting at the edge of the forest, and soon the cornfield was a whirling frenzy of panicked flight. A minute later the field was deserted. The huge dragon moved slowly to the edge of the tract and stopped. She nudged several cornstalks with her massive nose. Suddenly she drew back and blasted a huge fireball into the middle of the field. The entire tract was shortly ablaze, and the fire-drake skipped and danced ebulliently around the perimeter. Other dragons, Taltzvorms and Wyverns, heard the same unvocalized beckoning, and headed toward the Moloch's siren call. In yet another part of the land, far away from griffins and dragons, a ripple passed through the mess of harpies who were just starting to settle in for the night, in nests high above the forest floor. En masse the mess arose from the perches and circled the fields below. Young harpies, or harpoons, clung to their mothers' backs, their tiny human heads incongruously set on the bodies of vultures. They clung tightly to the foul and begrimed backs of their parents, as the circling mess flew in tighter and tighter orbits, until at last they comprised a huge cyclone of raucously shrieking harpies spiraling upward into the night blacking out the moon. Of an instant they ceased their cyclonic swirling and headed south toward the beckoning, leaving behind the inevitable harpy calling card, piles of filth, ordure, sludge, and general debris. The vile and rank stench both stayed behind at their former nesting place and traveled with them as they flew, screaming and shrieking southward. The villagers of Lesser Ethel-on-Gringe fled wildly from the flaming cornfield and its pyrogenic occupant. They gathered breathless at the stable in the small village. The men, all of whom were members of the yeomanry of Ethel, showed up in a motley collection of armor, carrying swords, longbows, and the occasional halberd. It was quickly decided that they would send an emissary to Ethelmertz, a larger village a half-day's ride to the south. Lesser Ethelon Gringe was at the kingdom's far northwestern border, a wild countryside to be certain, but one which had had no sightings of dragons, harpies, basilisks, or griffins for nearly a hundred years. It was decided that the remaining villagers would gather what they could carry from their houses and follow their emissary to Ethelmertz, where a troop of the king's huntsmen was quartered. And so they dispersed to their homes one last time, the women weeping softly the men clanking in their unaccustomed armor and glancing nervously over their shoulders at the smoke and cinders from the burning field 
swirling high into the calm early summer air. Chapter 2 The object of the Moloch's attention and final destination for the dragons, harpies, basilisks, and griffins she commanded was the kingdom of Ethel. King Ethelblue the Competent was the latest in the long line of the Ethel dynasty, which had ruled for as long as anyone could remember. The king was a kindly old man who had long outlived his wife, Queen Ethel, and his family was now comprised of Prince Ethelgas, his only son, and his son's wife, Princess Ethelmerm. Many inhabitants of the kingdom lived either at Castle Ethel or in the small village of Ethel on Bethel, just outside the castle gates on the narrow strip of land between the castle and the river Bethel. The king's subjects sometimes called the river the Ethelwaters. The castle, constructed of rough-hewn grey native granite, rose modestly over the small town, comprised of about fifteen hundred people, who lived in a jumble of narrow lanes and crooked back alleys in thatch-roofed buildings and cottages of various sizes. It seemed as though some giant hand had taken a well-ordered town and pulled up on its edges so that the buildings all tumbled in on top of one another. The only sounds likely to be heard in the town on an early summer's evening were the regular comforting chirp of crickets or the hourly, All's well, echoing from guard post to guard post on the castle walls. It was, in short, a pleasant place to grow up and live, and the inhabitants had had no threat to their well-being or safety for many years. Across the river were grain fields, meadows, and orchards and beyond the fields loomed the humongous forest of Glynn, which stretched as far as anyone had ever wanted to travel. The large, powerful, threatening animals, who unbeknownst to the sleeping villagers were now converging, had disappeared from the kingdom many years ago. These creatures, which the Ethelites collectively called nasties, had not been seen since old Tom was a youngster. Whites, the vaguely human creatures who lived in the forest of Glynn still abounded. Some whites, like elves, fairies, hobgoblins, imps, pixies, and pigwidgeons, possessed magic powers. Others, like ogres, trolls, gnomes, and giants, did not. King Ethelblue sat on his throne in the great hall of Castle Ethel. He had a bowl of walnuts in his lap and was cracking them one by one on the arm of his throne with the royal scepter. Prince Ethelgas sat on a small stool in the corner eating egg custard with a large wooden spoon from a bowl clasped between his knees. The prince's age was hard to determine. He was dowdy and frumpy, and even as an adolescent had looked middle-aged. He was pudgy, had thinning hair the color and texture of moldering straw, and his complexion was rather reminiscent of the egg custard he was wolfing down. He was near-sighted, which gave him a perpetual squint, and his clothing, bulging at the seams, was spotted, dotted, and speckled by food stains of various kinds. Ethelgas's wife, Prince Ethelmerm, was seated at a long table going over samples of cloth with Melissa, the royal seamstress. The princess was angular and thin, and her tongue was as sharp as her nose was long. She was like a schoolmaster's lesson in plain geometry. She was all angles and straight lines. The unbroken line of her long nose jutted from her face like a rocky crag. 
she seemed made up of intersecting planes and jutting juxtapositions, and she moved with the angular gracelessness of a newborn colt. Her clothes, obsessively padded and beribboned, only barely muted the sharp angles of elbows, knees, and hips. Her clothing allowance was listed in the royal budget under Royal Haberdashery, and was very nearly as expensive as the budget item Maintenance of a Standing Army. She was attended by her maid-in-training, set, an eerily pretty twelve-year-old, who even at this young age was learning to let Ethelmerm's sharp-tongued barbs fly right on by. When Princess Ethelmerm spoke, she reminded Melissa of an extremely untalented actress in a traveling show attempting to play a princess. The image that sprang to the maid, Elisette's mind, was that of a prune sucking on a lemon. The sun had risen on Ethel on Bethel as it had countless times before, but the stillness and calm of this early summer morning were soon shattered. Hello! shouted the messenger, galloping on horseback through the streets of Ethel on Bethel. Yikes! A roint! Hello! echoed down the sleepy village streets as the messenger's horse clopped across the drawbridge and clattered to a stop in the castle's courtyard. Young Tom, the twelve-year-old stable-boy, ran out of the king's stables and grabbed the lathered horse's reins. The messenger swung down from the saddle and pounded the dust from his cloak. The messenger, a stout, dark-haired fellow with a drooping walrus moustache, turned to the stable-boy and said, Where's the king? In the great hall, I think, young Tom answered. The horse swung his head toward the messenger and said, Mind your manners, introduce yourself. For this was a time either after the animals decided to start talking or before they decided to quit. Harumph! the dusty courier harumphed, brushing himself off further. Ethelbold, the messenger at your service, he said, bowing at the waist of the unstable boy. Now where's this here great hall? Ethelbold had been to the castle several times in his thirty-five years, but he had only seen the inside of a barracks and several alehouses in Ethel on Bethel. He had certainly never been invited to the great hall, and he felt great trepidation about approaching the king. But he knew he bore a message of vital significance to the king and the kingdom, so he steeled himself for the royal encounter. Young Tom, who had started to uncinch the saddle, saw his father walking across the courtyard. His father was humming a tune and carrying two scuttles of coal up the stairs to the stoves in the great hall. Tom, young Tom's father, was chamberlain to the king.